one body and one spirit, as you were also called to the one hope of your call. We can draw a lot from that. Those of you who are theologians, either professional or amateur, can draw more than, than I, a simple, lowly historian. But what I know from that is that we are called for this moment. Thanks, I never get tired of being called a cowboy Catholic, because it's true. Don't worry, Father Charles, I'm uh, abiding all DC laws here, yes. Uh, but at home, we're very well armed. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I've come to the CIC for many years, for mass and formation. I come here every week, and it is a real treat to be here with all of my friends at the Catholic Information Center, my friends at the Napa Institute. Thanks for the invitation. I see a lot of friends in the audience, but I'll, I'll cut to it because this objective I've been given, which I, I wrote down verbatim from the website, how to better navigate those times when policy and faith require two different responses. Years ago, that wouldn't have been so hard, but we actually need some time to talk about that. So I'm going to walk you through what I hope is a little, at least a little bit of wisdom. But in fact, I think the real fruit of this might be some of the questions that we get to, which we'll get to in time. But how appropriate that we have this conversation on the Feast of St. Matthew. And, and those of you who were here for Mass or went to Mass earlier or read today's Gospel, remember, as, as Father read a little while ago, as, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the customs post. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So ultimately, that could be my talk. That when you are, as Mitch has written, focused on how to better navigate those times when policy and faith require two different responses, acknowledging that policy and, and faith require two different responses in modern America doesn't mean, number one, that we give up our beliefs. First and foremost, this is self-evident, but it's really important to say, especially in the United States, that our love for Jesus Christ and his truth, which we know, and those of us who are Roman Catholics or those of us who are not Roman Catholics who are steeped in the intellectual tradition of Catholicism can come to know that through words as well as the word. I say that caveat and underscore it because there are going to be some tips that I give you tonight, some advice, if you will, from experience that may seem like we have to back up a little bit. They're all under the category of being savvy, but I will even in one of my subsequent points talk about strategic retreat. Now, I hate the word retreat. The Heritage Foundation doesn't like that word. In fact, it's not in our lexicon. And, and even as Christians, it's not really in our lexicon, but where we are, in the United States in terms of public policy, in terms of politics writ large, in terms of the cult culture war broadly, broadly defined, is that there simply aren't the material resources. There simply isn't the public support, lamentably, right now, for victory in all of those fronts. And, and having initially been trained as a military historian at Virginia Tech, that fell out of favor, so I had to go down like the politically correct road and, and you know do other kind of history. But I, I still see public policy through the lens, if you will, 
of military affairs, which is to say, pick the battle on ground of your choosing. That's the extended caveat for that. But I can tell you also, as I was praying about what I might say tonight, this morning, I, I really keyed in, in addition to the gospel, on what we heard in the first reading, St. Paul to the Ephesians. I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live in a manner worthy of the call you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another through love, striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, one body and one Spirit, as you were also called to the one hope of your call. We can draw a lot from that. Those of you who are theologians, either professional or amateur, can draw more than, than I, a simple, lowly historian. But what I know from that is that we are called for this moment. And so point number two, if you're keeping track, is not to despair. That in spite of all of the challenges, and there are many, in spite of all of the obstacles, in spite of all of the hatred, the vitriol thrown at us for our faith, I mean the following philosophically, dating back millennia as conservatives, I don't mean that in a, in a partisan sense, but in the sense that we want to conserve the permanent things, just, just for that reason, all of the vitriol we have to, to deal with, we are called for this moment, and we are called to be cheerful as we confront these challenges. That doesn't mean that we're weak, but it does mean that we have to be savvy. So I'm going to walk through some examples of public policy areas, topics, where we can really see the, the truth in, 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 in real clear senses of how difficult it is to be faithful and to do public policy. This is not an exhaustive list. You may, you may add some examples in your questions. I'll start with the most obvious, abortion. Think about that. Think about what we believe as Christians. As Roman Catholics, we believe that no abortion can be morally justified. And even in most American politically conservative circles, either in particular party apparatuses, or in organizational movements, that is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a majority opinion, by any stretch. And in fact, if you look at public opinion polls since the glorious Dobbs decision, that's become an even more difficult position to hold. In fact, I can think of, just as I, I'm mentioning these comments, two US Senate races that purportedly the pro-life candidate lost because he adhered to that position. Never mind that dozens, if not hundreds, of candidates who held that position won their races. That's not the story, right? Because too many in the media and, and in, in politics want to make it impossible to adhere to that very justifiable position, difficult as it may be in a political sense. But this has become even more difficult. I mean, who, who was anticipating that on June 24th, 2022, when I know all of you and millions, tens of millions of people in this country and around the world are rejoicing over the Dobbs decision. I know I didn't see that, and that's perhaps the story for another day, which is what we do with the pro-life movement and the, and the effort, especially as we go into an election cycle. Elections are not our concern, and I understand that. It's faith and policy, and Mitch, I will stay in that lane. 
but you, you can't escape the reality that our inability to use the same vocabulary from our faith in policy on the issue of abortion has an effect on electoral outcomes. And it probably will next year. As you know, it's if you track the news, this is very much in the news for the political right over the last week. That's precisely the point. So what do we do about it? You expect me to give you the solutions. Well, I have some advice. I don't know that I have solutions. The advice is, first and foremost, keep telling the truth. And if you're running for, and yet, in spite of telling the truth, don't belie your principles. If you're running for a U.S. House seat, just to think of one example, and you're in a district that's 50-50, then you have to find a way to talk about that issue that neutralizes the disdain that half the electorate has for what I might just call the Catholic position. And so what, just to continue with this example, because I, I want to be as optimistic and helpful as I can, Heritage, which is, of course, focused on public policy, we've spent a lot of time in the last year with some other pro-life organizations not having to worry so much about the law and about the policy, but on messaging. How is it that we can be better messengers for our side, not betraying our principles, but leading with messaging, which of course in this case focuses on the mother, focuses on the second life, also has a, a we ought to have a certain comportment as we're talking about that on TV and on the radio. These are all good. You see, we can do these things without betraying what we believe. But then ultimately, if a savvy kind of hostile reporter wants to ask follow-up question after follow-up question, eventually they'll get to the question that someone who believes what we believe on abortion will have to answer honestly. And that's the rub, because ultimately that's what the radical left is doing. Now, this microphone is looking like it doesn't want to cooperate, but I used to coach basketball, so this is a small arena. We'll be running sprints here in no time. The, this, I'll move on from, from the abortion issue because as, as much as it merits our entire attention, I want to really give you some, some examples of other policy areas. Another policy area very much related, obviously, by definition, is marriage. And same sort of contours there in terms of the friction between what we believe in our faith, which is that marriage is between one man and one woman forever. I mean, we're just, I'm just going to set up the friction between so-called traditional marriage, which and, and at Heritage we just call marriage, and same-sex marriage, which is not to denigrate the dignity of the human persons who find themselves in that kind of union, which has been approved legally, civilly, by the civil authorities. We, of course, love them and, and, and pray for them in the same way we pray for ourselves. But the point is that we have to be extraordinarily careful in how we talk about it. I, not that this bothers me. I'm not invited on some media shows and some media outlets because of my position on marriage. And they haven't even heard what I think about climate change. <laughs> I'm not invited on another outlet because of that. But some of you might, we might actually have a difference of opinion there. That's all fine. That's prudential. But on the matter of marriage, this is such a beautiful teaching of the church, so wonderfully philosophically and theologically consistent that it's lamentable that in the truly the greatest republic the world has ever known, that we can't even talk about it in the way that we would like without being denigrated, without losing races. Heck, you might not even be able to win primaries in the Republican Party 
if you adhere to what is the, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church on marriage. What do we do about it? The same sort of attitude. You have to, unfortunately, you have to neutralize the opposition to our position by saying, we accept what the law is, but we're working toward what we think is a much better outcome for civil society. Well, what is that? And you start talking about research. You start talking about data. Heritage, and I'm not here to tout what Heritage does. We're imperfect, like whatever organization you work for. But <laughs> it's, it's a Thursday night, and we've got to work in a little bit of humor, right? Um, your organization is awesome. But Heritage was, <laughs> to my knowledge, the first politically conservative organization last November to say, we're not going along with the misnamed Respect for Marriage Act. And, and while we respect the men and women who are voting for it in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate, it is unconscionable that people who present themselves as political conservatives, I don't care about party affiliation, as political conservatives would deign to vote for such a thing. And when we were told we ought not do that, that it would cost us funding, we went and spent $2 million in key races to try to flip it. We knew there was like a 5% chance that we would be able to do that. But our point was, as savvy as we wanted to be in messaging, as, as hard as we worked to make sure that our opposition did not become personal friction with members of Congress with whom we agree significantly on other issues, we also knew that that was an issue on which we had to take a stand. Intrinsically for that issue, but also because of an issue that's related, and that's religious liberty. That we believed, in our judgment, if we conceded that, and then there were many other organizations, of course, that began participating, thank goodness. We lost that. We knew we were going to lose it, but the, the votes were closer. We knew that if we conceded that point, then guess what was going to happen? Maybe the very next month, I mean, that's not hyperbole, but maybe the very next month, we were going to be defending religious liberty, which we had to do a little bit, but a lot less. So in our cases, in our case, because we had the material resources, given the generosity of our donors, to fight that fight knowing we only had a, a small percentage chance, we fought it. But even as we were fighting it, we were trying to use messaging in a way that didn't betray our principles, but brought people over to the other side and said, at the very least, in the United States, we ought to tolerate people believing that marriage is between one man and one woman, and you should just leave this issue alone. Unfortunately, it didn't flip enough votes, but it also prevented us from having to spend $2 million on religious liberty. I'm going to come back to religious liberty in a moment, which is in the public policy arena, my, my real passion. But let me speak about the hardest one. It's harder than abortion. It's harder than marriage. And we content, if we're thinking about all of the policy arenas in which we have a hard time using the vocabulary of our faith to apply to public policy, this one is the hardest and that's contraception. I mean, so much so that in, in my career in public policy, when family policy comes up, the question of family for formation comes up, the question of the, whatever the role of the state is in that comes up. If, if I were, as a Roman Catholic, if, if I were sitting with my family or with friends in this room in a, in a Catholic setting, I could speak in a certain way about the teaching we all believe. We may find you know, a, a difficult teaching, but we, we accept it, we believe in it, we love it. But even in a politically conservative setting, that can be a very difficult thing to advance. A majority of Roman Catholics don't believe in that teaching, if public opinion surveys are the case. 
And so it makes it very difficult to advocate for that. But, but listen to what Pope Paul VI wrote in Humanae Vitae half a century ago. Now it is an outstanding manifestation of charity towards souls to omit nothing from the saving doctrine of Christ. But this must always be joined with tolerance and charity, as Christ himself showed in his conversations and dealings with men. For when he came not to judge, but to save the world, was he not bitterly severe towards sin, but patient and abounding in mercy towards sinners? So speak with full confidence. So speak with full confidence, Pope Paul VI wrote. Convinced that while the Holy Spirit of God is present to the magisterium proclaiming sound doctrine, he also illumines from within the hearts of the faithful and invites their ascent. A couple of really important takeaways that are very applicable to this question tonight. And the first is that it isn't just some cold, abstract relationship between the Holy Spirit and the magisterium of the church, but that that same Holy Spirit gives us the words, the gift of discernment, the gift of of wisdom, to know what to say at the right time to the right person. And sometimes, depending upon the setting, and you know this, I'm saying this just to remind us, sometimes the right thing at the right time to the right person isn't the full teaching of Humana Vitae, right? It isn't the full teaching of contraception. And recognizing that that's not the time is no way turning into Judas. In fact, it's being apostolic in the very definition of the word, which is in modern common parlance, meeting someone where they are, which is a phrase that I actually don't like because so many times it's meant like that's the end of the story. Meet them where they are. It's like with your, you know, one of our kids when he was two, meeting him where he was, was he gets to eat Fruit Loops all day. Well, that's not good for his physical formation. Obviously, much more important questions about spiritual formation, but it, what it does is create, as I'll touch on more later, a relationship, maybe a friendship, maybe even in Aristotelian terms, an authentic friendship. And if there's an authentic friendship where there can be give and take and and true love, true respect that so far transcends modern American politics, then maybe, just maybe, you don't just have one chance for the right words at the right time with the right person. You have multiple chances. The difficult thing for those of us who are in politics is that, you know, even at Heritage, where we're really zealously focused on policy, not elections, Policy outcomes often are determined by who wins the election. So we have to pay attention to the elections. The, the, the challenge for us is we feel like Rome, Washington, is on fire. And that there isn't enough time. But in fact, we are on God's time. And it's trite to say that, but we also know that it's true. And we know that Mother Church doesn't think in terms of days and months and presidential election cycles. She doesn't even think in terms of decades. She thinks in terms of centuries and millennia. And I have to tell myself as an American exceptionalist, a historian of the American founding who loves this country and can never give back to it what she has given to him, that even America can get it wrong sometimes. And that maybe America needs to nod to the wisdom of thinking in the long term. And if we have adopt long-term thinking, just in this life, 
just in long-term nature of a human lifespan, that makes us a little less anxious about artificially looking for that conversation to tell the whole truth as we understand it without even developing a relationship with someone. I understand the challenges of that, but I'm really trying to, to give us some points of encouragement. One more policy area, and then I'm going to get into a series of tips. This is one that's uh, what we call a live wire at the, at the Heritage Foundation. We speak with one voice. We're, we're, if you don't know, we're, we're not a Christian organization. We're non-sectarian, but walk into Heritage and all of the faithful Christians and the faithful Jews, of whom we have many, a couple of very faithful Muslims, everyone is a person of faith. We're animated by our faith. I mean, we see the world in terms of the supernatural. So I can very comfortably speak on behalf of all, all of my colleagues, regardless of where they go to church on this point. The live wire for us as a politically conservative organization is economic policy. Because, and no disrespect to President Reagan, who's a hero for me and for us at, at, at Heritage, the, the invoking of Reagan in economic policy with completely full free trade, completely full attention, devotion, obsession with the GDP, there's not enough room, even just rhetorically, for the human person. Not that Reagan intended that, right? Hopefully you, you get the point, but I'm, I'm trying to overstate it for simplicity's sake. As a Roman Catholic, Republican Party economic policy is not perfect. And so as a Roman Catholic leading the Heritage Foundation, that's a tension. So this isn't a tension from the radical left. As I like to say in Heritage meetings, this is a tension from my people. But that's okay, because what we do at Heritage is work through these things. And we're, it's a live wire right now, because we're trying to figure out, as we, we, we met yesterday, on trade policy, how do we have the freest trade possible, which is one of our beliefs, punish enemies like the Chinese Communist Party, help friends like the Australians and the British, especially after Brexit. Sorry, I had to work that in. I love Brexit. But also, most importantly, don't determine success by computing trade deficits and GDP, but by however you would measure human flourishing. That's conservative. And so I mentioned that example just giving you a little inside view into how this operates in, in one organization in this town, but also to suggest that it isn't just a left versus right thing. Catholic teaching transcends both. So let me get into some tips. The first, of course, is to pray. You knew that I was going to say that, so I started with it. But it's really true. I mean, pray. Pray to the guardian angel of the person who is, you, you think, hostile to us. In fact, pray to our guardian angel so we're not hostile. Or at least I speak for myself. Because it's really easy in this context we find ourselves in, especially in this town, even if you're not directly working in politics, to see the, the politics and policy as the end-all be-all. And, and what I'm suggesting is that while, of course, there is a friction between our faith and policy and, and, and how we, we, we navigate that friction is important, in some cases, that friction's actually overstated or at least misperceived to be bigger than it really is. Prayer, of course, can help us with that. The second is listen. Listen. Now, it's hard to listen to protesters and people calling you all kinds of names, as some were doing to our friend, Dr. Robbie George, last week. 
But even he listened, at least the first few minutes. He, in particular, listened. And in, in other situations, uh, a work setting, particularly in this town where there's an expectation that, you know, we're, we're at least going to be civil, or at least there used to be, that we ought to be modeling that. And if that we see behavior in someone, that we don't ascribe it to an entire group of people, which then becomes hostility, if not hatred for them, but to listen and, and also to know that in listening is the cardinal virtue of humility. Because by listening, we aren't just being courteous to someone. We are, we are suggesting, we're showing that in fact, we believe we don't have all the answers. And I, I dare say, even though it's not fashionable to listen in modern American politics, that that might be one way we navigate the tension between what we believe as faithful people and public policy. The third, and I hear that, by the way, from, from members of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate. There's not a lot of listening going on in the U.S. House this week. I can, I can report that firsthand, <laughs> which is why I'm happy to be here with you tonight. <laughs> so they're going to go home back to their districts, and what are they going to do? They're going to listen. I think they're going to come back Monday, and they're going to be ready to go. The third is humor. It's a, it's a great natural characteristic of all human beings, of all cultures. It's particularly profound in the history of American politics, both on the left and on the right. And we really ought to try to find opportunities to inject more humor. I mean, some, some people just are, are naturally have the gift of timing with humor. I can't tell you how important I think this is. But actually to take some time as, as like a professional development tool through Toastmasters or Rotary or something else and say, I'm going to learn a few jokes or I'm going to, I'm going to practice with my friend's timing. And for some of us, it's not, it's not natural. And so we kind of have to work on it. I worked on it when I was a young history professor and my wife would come to like one lecture a, a year to sit in. And so she went from year one to year 10. And so in year 10, I mean, I always thought I was just awesome. Right. And I said, Michelle, what year 10, what do you think? I'm asking about the material that I covered, which I just thought had to be put together in the most brilliant way possible. She said, you are a lot funnier now than 10 years ago. <laughs> I said, I'm going, I'm choosing to take that as a compliment. <laughs> the fourth is, and, uh, and, and you all do this, I think by virtue of, of being here tonight, it suggests that, but maybe as a homework assignment, I always try to talk about action items. As a homework assignment, uh, when, when we're done with the formal part of this and there's a reception, let's pledge to meet someone we don't know right? One person. Now, and I don't mean that in like the, the DC speed networking thing where you're talking to someone, but you're really looking above them and around and say, oh, I want to really talk to that person. No, dial in, dial in and, and get to know them. And whether that's exchanging business cards or saying, I'll meet you here for mass or let's go have coffee or on the hill, wherever you are, that's what's going to save this country, folks. Good public policy is part of it. Good virtuous men and women in elective office is absolutely part of it, but that's part of it. St. Jose Maria says, actually, in the first point of the way, don't let your life be barren. Be useful. Make yourself felt. Shine forth with the torch of your faith and your love. With your apostolic life, wipe out the trail of filth and slime left by the corrupt sowers of hatred and set aflame all the ways of the earth with the fire of Christ that you bear in your heart. You see, if each one of us just in Washington, D.C. did that, right, left, center, apolitical, apathetic about politics, we would be well on our way. The fifth, 
be well and widely read. Some people are by the, the gift of the education they had in secondary school and, and universities, some because they've got the, a real serious dedication to professional development, but widely read as well. So that as you're building these friendships, we are conversant with people in fields we don't know. I have all kinds of engineering friends, even though I'm decidedly on the liberal arts side of the spectrum because I'm fascinated by it. And then I realized, well, to not to continue the friendship necessarily, because we can talk about football, but right, we always talk about football. Yes, especially University of Texas football after beating the Tide two Saturdays ago. I had to work that in. I've said that every day for the last nine days. It's going to come back to get me against Baylor on Saturday. But that I said, well, I've got to do a little refreshing. And so I, I spent uh, a semester not taking a physics class, but reading like the dummy's guide to physics. And so my chief of staff at Heritage told me last week, he said, Kevin, stop quoting laws of physics. Because <laughs> I try to apply them to politics and they don't always work. But, the, <laughs> but a lot of them do. And don't get me started. You get the point. It's also just good. Also solicit news from multiple sources. Whatever you gravitate to, maybe you're like my wife who follows politics but really wants to maintain her inner peace and, and, and read other things, uh, mostly Catholic and, and Christian outlets. Some of them cover the news, but she wants that angle. I think that's very wise and prudent on her part. I have to follow the news. So in, in my case, of course, I gravitate to certain right-of-center outlets, but always make sure almost every day to read one or two or four or five Articles And for me, reading it rather than seeing it or hearing it keeps my blood pressure down. So um, if, you know, maybe the guys in the audience can relate to that. But I think it's really important. And, and uh, not, not that I'm great, I'm far from it, but I try to model this at Heritage by taking media interviews, which is part of my job, with any outlet who asks. Even knowing sometimes they're going to be hostile. And um, I won't go into detail there because it sounds like I'll be maligning particular outlets, but the point is it's, it, in, in our cases, your, your respective cases, it's crucial to do that in what we're consuming. But also pick a day of the week, maybe the one that's called Sunday, not to consume any news. And go meet a neighbor. Maybe a neighbor has a political sign in their yard that you wouldn't have in your yard. Maybe a neighbor who's a little introverted maybe a neighbor who's been there for years and now it's going to be really awkward for you to introduce yourself. I've been there. I was, I was there on Saturday, just to let you know. I was, I was out uh, cutting down some, some little trees. I love yard work. And, you know, no, no news or anything. And I come up the hill at our house and I can see my wonderful wife talking to our neighbor, John. And I went back down the hill to cut down another tree. And I said, no, because I'd give all these talks and I'd say, go meet your neighbor. And I know John's a good guy. And so I turned off the chainsaw and walked up to him and he said, I've really wanted to meet you. And it's been two years. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. He said, I just wanted to tell you that I really love the Heritage Foundation. I thought, oh, I should have had this meeting before. <laughs> so you could pick on me as you're telling people this story. Now, it will not come as a surprise for you to hear the next thing, except you're not expecting to hear this. But it ought not be a surprise given that, you know, I led Wyoming Catholic College, which is a wonderful institution set in figurative wonderment 
but also literal wonderment. God's first book of the Wind River Mountains. Spend time outside. Every day. We now have wonderful studies. We've always had these, but they're really ramping up as people are trying to figure out what to do with the mental health crisis. Wonderful studies that humans of any age ought to get several minutes of sunlight, especially at daybreak, which is also a way of saying early to bed, early to rise. And do that, but, but get outside. You don't necessarily have to go crazy and run a marathon, but go hike. Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, Maryland, the Mid-Atlantic, some of the, the greatest areas for this, whether you like water or whether you like mountains or whether you like flat, even in Washington, D.C., actually particularly in Washington, D.C., there are wonderful ways to do this. I can't tell you enough from the experience I had leading Wyoming Catholic College and seeing how solid and serene and balanced those students were and are the importance of that. Now, I, I might also suggest, as they do at Wyoming Catholic, that you ride a horse a lot, but that's a little bit harder in the city. Some other specific things, I hear this from, from friends in other kinds of work settings. Have, have social meetings inside your workplace, but by that, I don't mean just happy hours. Nothing against happy hours properly ordered, but book clubs, there are all kinds of book clubs going on at Heritage. Our, our, our interns, we have one intern here, Patricio, um, they probably already have a book club going. And, 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 and pick a book that isn't political in this town, you know, uh, although there are plenty of fiction books that are political, you, you understand the point. Maybe it's not a book club. Maybe it's, it's a group of people who say, I want to go back to this class we didn't pay attention to in, in high school. Uh, I know some uh, workplaces in this city who say, Every month, we're going to pick a different academic topic, and we're going to have a speaker come in and, and talk about that. Anything that transcends that divide in politics also helps us have more conversations that, that avoid this tension between faith and policy. And so part of what I'm saying is there are times we have to confront that tension, but we ought to carve out some time in our days and our weeks when we don't have to. Cardinal Newman called all of this the philosophical habits of mind, to immerse ourselves in good reading. It, it's great if it's spiritual, but it doesn't have to be. And, you know, in, in, unless you're a theologian, it probably all shouldn't be in order to exist in the public square in the United States. Now I'm going to, the last few tips will be tactical. And I, I'm, I'm moving toward the closing because I'll, I'll certainly save time for questions. And some of these will be a little more hard hitting. But the one point that's less hard hitting is using incrementalism. There's a, a philosophy toward public policy change that I call radical incrementalism. When I was doing public policy in Texas, I would call this the enchilada theory. I'm a big boy. I don't want half an enchilada. But if I, if I can go get one in a piece of legislation and come back and get the other half next session, sign me up for that all day as a political conservative. Radical incrementalism. Go get 50% if you can. I'm just going to let you know doing conservative public policy, that's rare. Although it has happened this year, we've had nine states, eight states that have passed universal school choice. At Heritage, we consider that the whole enchilada. Other states are passing half. Texas will probably pass half next month. You, you, you put that on any policy, even apply it to abortion, even apply it to marriage, apply it to religious liberty. And maybe you're not getting half or a quarter or 10% of the enchilada, you're getting a morsel. But at least you got the morsel. 
The point is to tie that to a strategy that will let you get more of that enchilada. Now I'm making myself hungry. Question, in addition, question narrative framing. This is the most important thing to do tactically. If you're someone who's really involved in a particular issue, do not have the debate on terms of the other side. Do not even take the first step. I used to coach debate, so you'd hear that coming from me. Those of you who are attorneys, of course, spent three years perfecting this in law school. Do not accept the narrative framing of the other side. On marriage, on abortion, this is just to go back to the abortion issue. What's the number one thing Heritage and the other pro-life groups are telling members of the House and Senate right now who are pro-life but don't know how to talk about it? Stop talking about it the way the left wants you to talk about it. Talk about the fact that many of them want abortion to be legal until birth. Put that question on them. And when you ask that question, thank God more than 90% of the American people don't like that idea. Two final points in terms of tips, and then I'll close. I mentioned earlier, foreshadowed, I would talk about orderly strategic retreat told you a little bit about loving military history. Consider what Sun Tzu said in China millennia ago, avoid an enemy on open ground and meet him in the narrow way. For as it is written, if one is to stand against 1,000, there is not better than a pass. If 10 are to hold against 100, there's nothing better than a steep place. If 1,000 are to strike 10,000, there's nothing better than a difficult place. If a small force, with beat of gong and drum, suddenly arise in a narrow way, even a host will be upset. Wherefore, it is written, he who has a multitude seeks the plain, and he has few seeks the narrow way. Sometimes we have to back up or walk sideways in public policy so that we're able to fight that policy battle on ground of our choosing. Doing that is not a betrayal of our principles. In fact, it's probably a very savvy smart way of protecting those principles and looking for an opportunity, the narrow pass where we can be on offense. But finally, I would be remiss if I didn't say that there are sometimes all of the meekness, all of the savvy, all of the strategy is immaterial. And sometimes we just have to fight. And right now we have to fight on religious liberty, in particular, religious liberty as it relates to protecting institutions of faith. And that's not a time for strategic retreat. It's not a time to be savvy. It's not a time to be sweet. It's not a time to develop friendships with the other side. It is a time to take our fist figuratively, Father Charles, and bust them in the nose because they hate what you and I believe. The great thing is knowing that you can't always be on offense. The greatest militaries in the world knew you can't always be on the offensive. Ask Napoleon. You have to find time to rehabilitate your forces, reestablish your supply lines. But the reason you do that, given that you're in a battle, is to be in battle. And so to be very selective, restrained, but in a policy sense, in a figurative sense, lethal, which is to say, when. And so I started with the gospel reading from the gospel of St. Matthew, and I'll close with 
other words from that gospel, also from Matthew chapter 10. I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, our Lord said. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. I would think if the only thing we do is remember that, that the tension that exists between faith and policy while ever present will become something that we can Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.